So John Maxwell. Now, I haven't read too much of him, but I hear of these things. So I'm going to tell you what I heard of and then Googled about. Are you ready? John Maxwell, in his 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. Anybody heard of that? Raise your hand. John Maxwell, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. He talks about the, the leader's best friend. Does anybody know what the leader's best friend is? See, we're on the same boat. We're not reading this stuff, right? Momentum. He calls the leader's best friend momentum. Or he calls it, kind of in casual sentiment, the big mo. Everyone say the big mo. Doesn't it sound nice? The big mo, right? Anyway, the big mo. Momentum. When you have momentum on your side as a leader, the future looks bright. The obstacles appear small. An organization, he says, with momentum is like a train flying at 60 miles an hour. Nothing can stop it when the leader has momentum. Momentum gives people the feeling, even if it's not really the case, that victory is just around the corner or within reach, right? That's what momentum does. Moses and Aaron, as we look at chapter 5, the end of chapter 4, in the context of the people of God, Moses and Aaron, guess what they've got? The big, no, come on. The big mo, right? They got the big mo. They've got momentum, right? The, at the end of the chapter, ver, uh, uh, verse 31, chapter 4, the people believe. Uh, uh, one commentator said this was conversion. They heard a message about their deliverance, and guess what? They believe. They trusted in that message. They believed in it. And, and when, when they heard that the Lord had visited them, looked upon their affliction, what did they do in response to hearing that? They bowed their heads in worship. It sounds to me like, to some degree, they were at a retreat. Right? They heard a great message from a hopeful leader. Everybody got saved up in here. And everybody sang. Sounds like retreat, right? Everyone got really excited. Mountaintop experience. Everyone's cheering. Yay! Excitement was very high. So now it's time to take that message of hope, uh, kind of garbed in this momentum, and go to the big cheese in Egypt. They're going with that message to Pharaoh himself. What will Pharaoh do? Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Open up your Bibles if you have one. If not, I believe it'll be projected up there. And between checking Facebook and Twitter, you can follow along on your smartphone. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and therefore I will not let Israel go. And then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. 
lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer a sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered all throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? And then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, You're idle? You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, and you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge. Because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. This is God's Word. Amen? So riding the wave of excitement, riding the seeming momentum, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh. They have access to Pharaoh. We don't know how. Some people think it's just customary that the Pharaoh is, for the most part, available to the people as the leader. And so we don't know how, but they get access to Pharaoh and they go to Pharaoh and they proclaim to Pharaoh the word of the Lord. Let's be clear about that. Moses and Aaron proclaim to Pharaoh the word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, telling him, to let his people go. Right? Look at what the text says. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 5. Thus says the Lord. Have we heard that phrase anywhere else in all of Scripture? Is this the only time we see such a phrase? When do we also hear these phrases? Somebody help me out. 
about what kind of books? The prophets. That's right. So there are prophetic books in the Scriptures. Isaiah, Jeremiah, right? All the minor, Ezekiel, all those prophets. And you know what you'll see often? That when, when the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh, speaks on behalf of Yahweh, what does he say first? Thus says the Lord. Moses and Aaron are prophesying. They are speaking as God's representative the word of the Lord. Okay? This is the word of Yahweh. Moses and Aaron come not with their own words, but with who? The words of Yahweh. Moses and Aaron come with the authority of Yahweh. Not their own authority. Right? Thus says the Lord. It's a very prophetic statement. All right? But not only that, as I pointed out a few weeks ago, this is a very possessive statement again. Right? Look at what he says. To the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh, who has for 400 years held on tight in oppression of the nation of Israel. He gets very possessive about these people. This is what he says. Look, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a fast to me, a feast to me in the wilderness. In his prophetic tone, in this prophetic word, God is telling Pharaoh what to do because Pharaoh assumes he has control over a people that he would consider to be his own. But Yahweh is saying, no way, Jose, these are my people. You let them go. They're going to hold a feast to me. They're no longer going to serve you. They're going to serve me. Because they're mine. So again, he is taking possession of his people in these prophetic words. So what does Pharaoh do? How does Pharaoh respond? It should just be simple, right? Considering the identity of Israel's God, considering his power, considering his clear instructions upon this dictator, this could be it. But we see that Pharaoh, despite this momentum, this excitement, this, that's pushing the people of God towards freedom, Pharaoh says, no. That's simple. And the air of the balloon, right? The momentum that's been manufactured to some degree, is gone. He says, who is the Lord? Or who is Yahweh? Right? That's the tone for sure. If we think it's a curious tone, we're missing it. The most powerful man in the world is being told what to do by someone he has no idea who he is. Who is Yahweh? That I, that me, Pharaoh, that I should obey his voice. Is this Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? He says emphatically, I do not know Yahweh. I do not know the Lord. Moreover, because I do not know the Lord, I will not let them go. So the reason Pharaoh does not let the people of God go is simple. He does not know the Lord. The reason Pharaoh disregards, dishonors, discredits 
the word of the Lord is because he does not know the Lord. Right? Let's be clear. If we do not know the Lord, we will not obey the Lord. Right? Obedience comes out of what? Trust. Which comes out of what? Knowledge. You don't trust someone you don't know, and you don't obey someone you don't trust. Knowledge precedes obedience. It's as simple as that. So while we would think 2020 vision, why doesn't he obey the voice of God? Is he nuts? He doesn't know. So that's why he does not obey him. Knowledge is necessary for obedience. And I think it's interesting because as we reflect on that statement, you begin to think about maybe times in your life or situations or conversations that you've had with other believers, people who know and trust Jesus and obey him. And you'll get, you'll get a lot of angry, frustrated, kind of ornery Christians that are so confused why anyone would vote for that or why they would support this. Why would they look at a, a relative or a neighbor and they look at their behavior and they say, why? It makes me so angry when they act that way. Why do they do that? We get all flustered, don't we? And yet we would think, well, why would he obey Jesus? He doesn't know Jesus. Right? He, how can we expect people in our world to obey a God they do not know. So we do not get frustrated with a world that doesn't know Jesus. We do not get angry. We're broken for our place. We're prayerful for people. We love them. We care for them. And guess what we also do? We proclaim the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Because they don't know. Right? Ignorance will never save anybody. Right? Ignorance is not a, a get out of hell free card. Oh, I didn't know. That's my bad. That's why mission exists. Because obedience doesn't, to rephrase Piper. Right? Mission exists because obedience doesn't exist. Worship doesn't exist, as John Piper said. So that's what uh, this is all about. And let's not forget for a moment that Moses is obeying the voice of the Lord right here. Why? Because, as he says, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. That's what the God of the Hebrews never met with Pharaoh, did he? So we look at Moses and say, oh, what a great guy. What's the only difference between Moses and Pharaoh? God showed up in a bush and said, this is who I am. He made himself known, right? So let's not lose sight of the fact that Moses, even at the revelation of Yahweh, did not want to obey. But as God continued to reveal himself, as God continued to speak to him and call him and woo him and to some degree say, you're going. In his life, he was refusing to go. And let's not forget for a moment that all of our obedience is not a time for us to pat ourselves on the back, is it? Man, I'm doing great. Getting it done in Scripture memory. Getting it done. Right? All that happens in our life is God, the God of the Hebrews, meets with us. God shows up, reveals Himself. We know Him. Then we trust Him. 
And then, empowered by His Spirit, what do we do? We obey His voice. Right? If you don't know the Lord, you won't obey the Lord. That's what Pharaoh doesn't know. So he's not going to obey. And that's why we talk so much here and drive you crazy in infinitum about mission, about proclaiming the gospel to people in your world. Because you know Jesus and the people that live around you, work with you, your na- they don't. And so we have to come to grips with the ignorance of our place. They don't know Jesus. And we have to come to grips at the very same time of our instrumentality. How are they going to know? We're going to tell them. God's going to raise up a messenger to stand and say, thus says the Lord. Amen? If you don't know the Lord, we will not obey the Lord. So in the midst of this, we see that Pharaoh, not knowing the Lord, does anything but let them go. And he doesn't just not let them go. Beyond that, what does he do? He tightens his grip on the people of God, doesn't he? He doesn't just let them go, but he actually, in his response, tightens his grip. Look, instead of letting them go, he makes their work more difficult. Basically, you used, we used to give you straw. Right? Verse 6. We used to give you straw. We're not going to do that anymore. You got to go get it. And we're not even going to tell you where it is. You got to find it. And by the way, the quote is the same. Right? What is he doing there? He is flexing his own muscles, he's tightening his grip. As Yahweh is saying, let him go, Pharaoh's saying, oh no, pal, I've got these people. They're mine. And I'm going to show them whose they really are. Pharaoh is tightening his grip. Look at what he says later. He says, verse 9, Let work, heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. What an amazing statement about how Pharaoh views these false words. Right? This is... Uh, these words he considers to just simply be lies. This, thus says the Lord, this proclamation of freedom and redemption, this let them go, let them go worship me, it's just a lie. It's just a flat out lie. And so what does he do? In response, he makes work harder. He wants to teach them that they're just lazy and you got to just simply work harder. I mean, how else do you teach people to work hard? How do you learn hard work? Help me out. You work. So he wants to teach them to work harder. So what does he make them do? Work harder. You just need to work harder because you're lazy. And these are just lying words. And so he is tightening his grip in such a way, I believe, to squeeze out all their hope. Right? Instill doubt in God's people for the very words of God. And talking about this midweek with Paul, he pointed out something in history that, you know, this is how oppressive governments have handled the people that they oppress. What do they do? They distract them. They just keep them so busy, so overwhelmed, so consumed in the moment with what they have to do that they forget about tomorrow. They forget about a bright future. They just got to get today over with. 
And so as Pharaoh is teaching them how to work harder, he's also squeezing out all hope, saying, hey, forget those words. You've got to focus your attention on your current reality. And I think so often that's what happens to us in our fight against sin, isn't it? We get so caught up in the moment, so caught up in the temporary, that we forget about God's heart and God's will and the hope of Jesus concerning our sin and our situation. And we get distracted. We're stuck on our phones. We're Googling this and Googling that and this app and that app. We're we're calling this person. We're doing that. We're on the phone while we're on the TV. We're so consumed, distracted with productivity, that we lose all sense of hope of where God is bringing us. These are lying words. And I love what happens next. I actually hate it. But I love what Moses is trying to teach us, right? Verse 10, thus says Pharaoh, right? So, so they went out and told the people, thus says Pharaoh. He doesn't just tighten his grip, but now he's dropping on them a competing command. Do you see how those are set side by side? Thus says the Lord, thus says Pharaoh. This is indeed a war of words for the people of God, is it not? Right? God's authority, Yahweh's authority, His Word, side by side with the the Word and the authority and the command of the most powerful man in the world that basically has dishonored, discredited, disregarded the Word of Yahweh. Truth is in constant conflict with falsehood in our world. There is always a war of the words. This is what the Lord says. This is what the world says, is there not? This is reality. This is truth. No, no, no. Christian, actually, this is reality. This is truth. This is how we are to live in light of that. Is there not a constant conflict in our world between truth and falsehood? There's a constant war taking place to get your affection, to get your trust, and it's always a battle of the Word. What Word do you believe? What Word do you trust? Is it the Word of the Lord, or the Word of the world, or the Word of Pharaoh? The critical question for the people of God here, and the critical question for the people of God today, is what words carry weight over our lives? We cannot think enough about that question. What words carry weight for our families? What words carry weight in our marriage? What words carry weight as we consider our checkbook and our finances? What words carry weight as we think about our thinking, our thought life? (laughs) What our mind is on, where it goes when nobody is watching or talking to us? What words carry weight about our dreams, our vision, where we see our lives in 5, 10, 15, 20 years? What words carry weight for us as the people of God? It's the constant question we need to be wrestling with. 
Pharaoh is tightening his grip. He's giving a competing command of his own for a people that he considers his own. He's tightening his grip, right? The, the, then finally, verse 14, Pharaoh's taking the next step of control. He's actually inflicting physical pain on the people that are not making quota. He's beating the living tar out of these people. Again, a way to control, to flex his muscle, to tighten his grip on the people of God. And so now, we're no longer asking what will Pharaoh do in response to the word of the Lord. We're asking what does the people of God do in response to the actions and the competing words of Pharaoh. To their harsh circumstances. How do they deal with this unexpected, seemingly undeserved difficulty that's come their way? And it's in this moment that we see a very tragic irony taking place. Verse 15, Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. Pharaoh? Wait a minute. Pharaoh? Came and cried to Pharaoh, right? If you go back to chapter 2, we remember after 400 years, of being inflicted with so much awful slavery, we read the words that the people of Israel groan because of their slavery. They cried out for help. And where did that cry go? You help me out. Where did the cry of the people of Israel go in chapter 2? To God. Same word, cried to Pharaoh. What? The ironic tragedy, the shift that's taking place. They groaned, they cried, and that groaning, that cry came to God and God heard it and God began to act as He saw their affliction. But now, in the midst of this stepping up of their sorrow and their struggle, against their oppressor. Now, they're turning to their oppressor for relief. And we begin to wonder, what in the world is that all about? He says, look at they say, they turn to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straws giving to your servants. Behold, your servants are beaten. Repeated phrase, don't miss it. They cried to Pharaoh. They went to him for relief. And they identified themselves with Pharaoh. Makes no sense. And yet to some degree, it makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? Talked a little bit with Jeremy. Actually talked a lot with Jeremy. Jeremy's recovering um, from our trip. Pray for him. He talks about a phenomenon in his domestic violence cases. He talks about how in fear of their oppressor, the victim seeks the approval of the oppressor. He talks about the fact that in their perception, the oppressor has the power to make their lives better. 
What they should be doing is running to their rescuer, the police and the district attorneys, and saying, that guy's crazy. He deserves to go to prison. But instead, they run back to their oppressor and they seek their approval. They seek safety from the one who has taken it away. It makes no sense at all. But yet there's something inside of us that does that. There, we would expect the people of God to run to the promises of God. To cry and groan back to God. To say, it's gotten really bad, Lord. Please, deliver us. But instead, they go and cry to Pharaoh. They identify themselves with Pharaoh. They put themselves at the feet and mercy of their oppressor. It makes no sense, but it's something that we do all the time. Maybe more direct for us. Considering our struggle against sin, the very thing that oppresses us. Do we not respond in the moment to the painful effects of sin by running to another sin? Do we not use sin to help us deal with sin instead of turning to the living God to save us from it? Maybe an illustration could be this. Husband and wife having problems, right? Wife doesn't trust husband. Husband doesn't feel the honor and respect and reverence that is being given to husband, right? Wife is not submitting to husband. They got issues. That's sin going on there. There's sin back and forth, right? And they feel the sorrow of that. They feel the disconnectedness of that. They begin to walk in the effects of that sin. And then what does husband do? Because he's not experiencing joy and happiness in the context of his marriage, man does what? He finds refuge and solace in an adulterous relationship. We run from sin. What? To sin. And there may be some of us in this room that maybe those that's not the scenario. But when we're dealing with the effects of sin in our world, when we're dealing with the fact that God is not done making all things new and that you have not been fully conformed to the image of Christ, when we look at disease, difficulty, suffering, persecution in this world as we await the final making of all things new, as we wait for that day, we deal with that struggle, we deal with that oppression, and what do we do in the moment? We look for temporal pleasure in the midst of sin. We do this all the time. We cry out to Pharaoh from the effect of Pharaoh, to deal with the effects of Pharaoh. What we need to do is turn to and trust in the Lord. He is our Savior, is He not? The only way to be set free from sin is through Jesus, not sin. The only way to experience freedom and for life to get better. I'm not going prosperity on you. The only way for that is to run to Jesus and cry out to Jesus. So if you're in the midst of struggle, dealing with the weight of whatever that looks like for you, don't run to anything but Jesus. He's sufficient alone. He's your Redeemer.
And I think here we're getting to see that we, we can trust in the Lord to loosen the, oppress, the oppressor's grip. We can trust in the Lord. He's revealed His Word. His Word is true. Right? He's unveiled His plan. It may not be fully complete in this moment for the people of God. They're still waiting for it. But His plan is still what? Sure. So we can trust in the Lord to loosen oppression's grip because His Word is true. No matter what the world says. And His plan for us is what? Sure. Sure. But in this moment, the people of God don't see that, do they? Pharaoh doesn't relent. They see their trouble. Basically, yikes. That didn't work. We're in big trouble. And they walk out in a state of frustration and exhaustion. And they meet Moses and Aaron. And Moses and Aaron are probably like, okay, how are we doing? Right? And in the blink of an eye, in the sh- this shift takes place again in the people of God, their hearts. They look at Moses and Aaron, who were once the representation of their hopes for redemption. The one that was preaching their blessing and their freedom. This new land. The ones that came and gave them hope after 400 years were now the ones that, as far as they were concerned, were at fault. It's all your fault. And no longer do we consider you to be the representation of the blessing of God. We actually want you to be the recipient of His cursing. The Lord look on you and judge. It's all your fault. So on the one hand, Moses, a couple you know, days ago, was hired. We, we're in, man. We love Moses. And now the next day, uh, you're fired. Right? The fickle nature of who we are as people when the going gets rough, when the timing of redemption is off, when the process of redemption seems painful or is painful, and we know that God's redemption, there, there is a perfect timing that's attached to it, right? There is, a, there is a process and there's a pain that came alongside the redeeming of His people. Ultimately, we see that fulfilled in the suffering and the sorrow and the pain of Christ on our behalf on the cross. His blood is spilled. The process of redemption is always more painful than we would like it to be. But even as the timing of redemption seems off, and even as the the process of redemption uh, is painful for us, guess what? We can trust in the Lord. No one else. He's the one that will loosen the grip of the oppressor. Because His Word is true. And His plan is sure. So much for momentum. <laughs> kind of a letdown, right? We're stopping here. We're not even going to 22. We're not moving. Kind of a letdown. Oh, man. Pharaoh has heard the word of God. He's tightened his grip. He's responded, no. Why? Because he doesn't know the Lord. Well, let's be clear about what's about to happen in the next 10 chapters or so. 
Pharaoh will know Yahweh. Oh, he will. Does that mean he's going to have intimate relationship and he's going to join the, the worship service? As we know, that's not what I mean. But he will know Yahweh. The people of the Lord who think they know Yahweh have so much more to know about Yahweh, don't they? It kind of reminds me of the New Testament revealing of this. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Right? The, the people in our world, they, they may reject the Lord's Word. They may not know the Lord. Let's deal with this reality in a very sobering, humbling way. Guess what? They will know. They will know the Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it won't be momentum at the end of eternity with a bunch of high-fiving and yays. It will be in response to the mighty hand of God that shows up in time and place. Jesus is coming again. He will not be, as Driscoll would say, the humble, marginalized Galilean peasant. He will be on a horse. He will have a sword. And He will slay His enemies. Pharaoh will know Yahweh. We will know Yahweh. The world will know Yahweh. And not only that, right? the Lord will loosen the grip of their oppressor. Some of you need to hear that tonight. Some of you need to hear the truth that in the midst of your entanglement with sin and the pain you feel from other people's sin, sin has ruined life for many. But Jesus will set us free. He will loosen the grip of your oppressor. He's done it, really. He's secured it. He's fulfilled. All of this is a foreshadowing of the redeeming work of Jesus. In Christ, He has loosened the grip of our oppressor. Amen? Come on. Jets beat the Steelers? Who cares? Right? Jesus has loosened the grip of our oppressor. Even though the this chapter ends differently than the last. Can we can we, can we go back to 431 together? We're gonna call the band up. Even in the midst of this difficult heightening pain that seems to put redemption's timing off and process in the midst of that, can we can we celebrate reality? That we know the Lord and that He has set us free from sin. Can we celebrate that tonight? Let's stand. I'm going to pray. We're going to celebrate the fact that 
Our Lord is trustworthy. He will indeed loosen the grip of our oppressor. His word is true. His plan is sure. And I pray, God, that that would give us great hope. That that would give us great excitement. Even in the midst of difficulty, exhaustion, frustration, resentment. Even though we're confused, Lord, I pray that in the midst of that, we would say to our soul, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all of His benefits. Bless His holy name. Forgives all your sins. Who redeems your life from the pit. Let's celebrate Him together.